You're listening to the B&H Photography Podcast. For over 40 years, B&H has been the professional source for photography, video, audio, and more. For your favorite gear, news, and reviews, visit us at bnh.com or download the BH app to your iPhone or Android device. Now here's your host, Alan Weitz. just want to thank you guys for having me. You have no idea how surreal it is to be here among all these photographers whose work I've looked up to my entire career, so thank you. It's an extraordinary panel. We have a group of legendary photographers. It's absolutely unheard of to have all of these folks in one place. They've all lived extraordinary lives and created extraordinary images. But before we get going, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge all of the Pulitzer Prize winning photographers here tonight and whose names appear on the screen behind me. And I'd ask if you could all please stand and be acknowledged. Welcome to the B&H Photography Podcast. On May 10th, the Parsons School of Design hosted an event organized by the Eddie Adams Workshop and supported in part by B&H Photo. The event was simply called Pulitzer Prize Photographers, and it was held in celebration of the centennial of the establishment of the Pulitzer Prize. The event gathered Pulitzer-winning photographers from six decades, and frankly, it was really exciting to be even in the same room as these legends and future legends, including Robert Jackson, Nick Utt, Carol Guzzi, and Daniel Berihulak, let alone to see their images and listen to their stories. The after party was pretty good, too. In this episode of the podcast, we're going to do our very best to bring you to the event, to share the moments of insight from the photographers, and provide a sense of the evening's activities. Introductory remarks were made by Alyssa Adams, director of the Eddie Adams Workshop. Alyssa and her late husband, photojournalist and Pulitzer Prize winner Eddie Adams, founded the workshop as a place where established photojournalists and editors could mentor younger photographers for the betterment of both. What we're going to be viewing tonight are images that are bigger than their frames, images that have burst out of the perimeter and continue to reverberate beyond the moment they were taken. Images that have become a part of history and are a constant reminder of who we are. The purpose of this evening is to draw attention to the power of the still image as embodied in the collection of the Pulitzer Prize images and to get to know the people, the photographers who captured these historic moments, to hear from them how these photos came to be. Incredible photographs were indeed displayed, and many, even those created decades earlier, remain as potent today as they were back when they were first published. The event was emotional. Laughter and gasps echoed in the auditorium. Sighs of recollection, even tears. Next on stage was Hal Buell, 40-year veteran of the AP and its former photo director. Hal was one of the organizers of the night's event, and he spoke of the history of the Pulitzer and actually clarified something many of us, including past winners, did not know. Now, rules for consideration are simple. They require only that an entry must have appeared in an American daily or weekly newspaper, a magazine, their online sites, or any news-only online site. No guidelines are offered about picture content or historical significance or technical skill, journalistic experience or cultural impact, or anything else for that matter. A review of the Pulitzer photographs reveals an eclectic collection that ranges from the horrors of war to the gentle vignettes. The saga of the Pulitzer Prize starts in 1864, that's right, 1864, with the arrival in America of a flat broke 17-year-old Hungarian immigrant named Joseph Pulitzer. 
That is Pulitzer, not Pulitzer. Hal introduced Santiago Leone, current vice president for photography at the Associated Press. Santiago Lyon will be your host for the evening, taking you through the Pulitzer photos, as well as moderating the panel discussion and the Q&A session later. Santi is the Associated Press vice president for photos in charge of AP's global photo service. Worth noting that while he formally started with AP in 1991, his actual start dates back to 1975, when as a nine-year-old son of an AP correspondent in Lisbon, he would sometimes assist a somewhat indecisive AP photographer with editing of the photos. Rumor has it that he was paid in candy. Santi? Thank you, Hal. Thank you very much. I'm pleased to report that I am no longer paid in candy. Now I get paid in donuts. Santiago emceed the night. He displayed and discussed every Pulitzer winner from 1942, the year the award was created for photography. He went year by year, and at the end of each decade, a Pulitzer winner spoke in detail on the creation of their awarded image. The first was a video clip of the late Joe Rosenthal speaking on his photograph of the U.S. flag being raised on Iwo Jima during World War II. Now look quickly around. There were a couple of stones there from an old bashed or bombed headquarters or viewpoint up there. And there were a couple of old sandbags. And I rolled up a couple of stones in the sandbag. And that raised me about a foot and a half or so. Well, I, my being already built close to the ground in height, this foot and a half gave me just enough uh, clearance. I, again, these were the things that did chance. Just about the time I climbed aboard, Bill Janoust, the marine photographer with the movie camera, came across in front and went just to my right. The flag's out there, and he's just to my right. I'd say just at arm, arm's length, maybe just off the tips of my fingers, and said, I'm not in your way, am I, Joe? And I turned, and I said, no, that's fine. Hey, there it goes, Bill. I had, I had peripheral vision then. <laughs> and I could tell they had just lifted the pole off the ground, and it was on its way up. I swung my graphic around close up to my face and held it, watching through the finder, see when I could estimate what's the peak of the picture. And I could only hope that it turned out the way that I looked at it through the finder. Continuing through the 1950s, Leon describes the making of the 1954 winner, an amateur snapshot of a truck dangling over the side of a bridge. On their way to go fishing, Virginia Shaw and her husband Walter were stuck behind a highway accident in Oregon. As Walter worked to successfully rescue the drivers of the truck using a rope, Virginia took out her brownie camera from the trunk of her car, where it had been untouched for the previous year, and made this remarkable photograph. It was the first time a woman had won a Pulitzer Prize for photography. 
As Leon walked us through the 1960s, it was interesting to see the subtle changes in news photography reflected by various winners. And we were fortunate enough to have in person Robert Jackson to discuss his work in Dallas when President Kennedy was assassinated and the creation of one of the most iconic images from that era. 1964. Kennedy assassin Lee Harvey Oswald was in a Dallas police station when nightclub owner Jack Ruby walked up and fatally shot him. Bob Jackson of the Dallas Times-Herald was there to make this amazing photo and is here with us tonight. He'll tell us in person about the events of that day. Bob? First, let me say I'm truly honored to be here uh, among this prestigious group of photojournalists. Um, 52 years ago, on the 22nd of November, I was assigned to cover the uh, arrival of President Kennedy in Dallas. And so I go into the motorcade. I'm in the seventh car behind the president. Uh, and there was, uh, it seemed like everybody in Dallas came out to see the president. The newspaper had asked me to unload my camera from the motorcade and toss the film out to a reporter that we had stationed at Main and Houston Street. So I unloaded the camera. And uh, as we turned the corner and I tossed the film out, uh, I heard the first shot. And then two more close together. I looked straight up at the book depository, saw the rifle on the window ledge, saw him draw it in. We won't go into anything after that till I got to the hospital. And after Kennedy was pronounced dead, I was able to shoot some grief pictures and then the hearse taking the body away. After that, I went to the police station and where I stayed well into the night and was able to get a picture of Oswald as he was being moved up and down the hall to be interrogated. I'm especially proud of this picture because I was the only one that got it. I managed to wedge myself between uh, Oswald's mother and wife as uh, I got between them and the elevator door. And uh, I was tempted to go in the elevator with them, but I knew that wouldn't happen. So two days later, I was assigned to shoot the transfer of the prisoner. Now, they wanted to move him in secret at first, but so much pressure was put on the city. Uh, they wanted to make sure he was being treated fairly and so forth. So uh, Sunday morning, uh, I was, ended up in the basement of the police station, and we were waiting for Oswald to be brought down. Uh, they moved this armored car in, uh, but it would not clear the roof. It was too tall. So they decided to put Oswald in an uh, unmarked police car, which was parked down the ramp behind where I'm standing. Picked a good spot that I thought I would get a clean shot. I pre-focused the camera on about 11 feet, and uh, they said, here he comes. Notice somebody stepping out from my right about to block my shot. So I remember leaning against the fender of the car, uh, and uh, I was ready. I was prepared because I was looking through the camera. Ruby fired, and I fired at the right time. Then it was bedlam. Uh, first thing that happened, first of all, I tried to shoot another frame real quick, but I knew the strobe would not recycle fast enough. Uh, and then I was aware that uh, there was a hand over my camera and there was a policeman pushing me back. 
and uh, he was just pretty upset. And another policeman jumped on the hood of this car and ran over the top of the car and jumped into the pile that was uh, wrestling Ruby to the ground and so forth. Photographer John Philo represented the 1970s and spoke on his image of the Kent State University students slain by National Guard troops during an anti-war demonstration in 1970. And then John White came to the stage. John was awarded the 1982 award for feature photography. A second photography Pulitzer had been established in 1968 for feature work, distinguishing it from spot or breaking news photography and recognizing the importance of long-form photographic series. White's series was simply called One Man Chicago, which he described as a love affair with the city. And now we'll hear from the magnificent John White. John? Hello, my friends, I'm, I'm happy to be here and I'm excited to be here and all that, you know, it's good to be here and thanks for them, friends. Uh, and we've seen so many magnificent images, uh, Pulitzer, you know, it's, it's really great to be to say I'm a part of the Pulitzer family and all is good, okay. But let me tell you how to win a Pulitzer Prize because we all use the camera of our hearts and those things, okay. Uh, and a long time ago, they would say, well, yeah, it's, it's F8 and be there. They really say, be there. Uh, and that's true. But today, to win a Pulitzer Prize, you have to be there. And then the best way is to attend the Eddie Adams workshop. <laughs> because, you know, like the, the, the Space Hubbard Telescope was in the cargo bay for five days, and they, you know, re, you know gave it new GPS and new wings and this thing, and they launched it back into orbit, and that's what the, uh, uh, the workshop does. And the other thing to do, that's three things, the third thing is to use a Nikon. <laughs> and you can just go. That's true. Let me just share with you, if I may, what the Pulitzer means to me in my journey in the Pulitzer. It's part of an affair that I was having with life, with the city of Chicago, with the people, part of the heartbeat of humanity, the heartbeat of people, the images and things, and, and to think that I can, I can do that and I can be the, the, the eyes for others on a daily basis uh, and do that every day. And so having that affair in Chicago uh, uh, was enriching, it was enlightening and inspiring. Um, and the other thing about the poster that I like is that, you know, I happen to be the person who crossed the goal line with the ball and I got the credit for the touchdown. But you're supposed you're part of a team, you're part of an organization, you're part of, of something bigger. And, and the, the body is made of many parts. And so when, when, when the person wins a Pulitzer, it's all the people winning, they're winners, you know. And, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm excited about that. There are a lot of lessons from the Pulitzer, and one is that dreams come true when you keep them alive. I used to look at the moon, and the moon was this beautiful light of splendor. But after the polls, I know that people can go to the moon and come back. And you, 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 you have to put feet to your dreams, action to your dreams, because dreams come true. I learned, too, that you can fly with broken wings, shattered dreams. But the pullers will say you still can fly because you're flying for others. And that's the great thing about the pullers, because we're these, we're these 
we, we, all, you, you all, pull us, everybody. Visual servants, visual servants. And what we do here is timeless. And generations from now will continue to be served by, by, by what we're doing. And so that's, that's, that's exciting for me. So it's good to be a part of that. I wish I could give each person a, a Pulitzer image. I take this picture, and that'll be a Pulitzer picture. <laughs> but may I give you um, some fuel for your journey? Three words, three F words. Faith, focus, and flight. So my assignment to you is to be faithful to your purpose in life, your assignments, your, 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 your being. I met a student before this, I think Gina, and I said, hi, where, how are you? What are you, what are you doing? What are your goals? And she explained, you, dreams come true when you put actions to them, feed to them. So wherever you are, keep those dreams alive, but be faithful. And then focus, I should say precision focus in this day and time. What counts? What matters? There's life beyond deadline. Be ambassadors of love. Remember others. And then flight, spread your wings and keep in flight. Thank you, my dear friends. The 1990s were represented by Martha Ryle, who spoke on her work titled The Trek of Tears, which documented the plight of people fleeing genocide in Rwanda. But first, let's listen to Santiago Leone as he describes the 1994 prize winners and the extreme conflict and pain that photographers can experience when working in the face of bloodshed and suffering. 1994 news. An American helicopter was shot down in the Somali capital of Mogadishu. The pilot killed and his body dragged through the streets. Paul Watson of the Toronto Star and his two armed bodyguards located the scene amid heavy fighting to make this image. Watson has been haunted by this photo ever since, writing that he heard the dead soldier's voice telling him at the time of taking the photo, if you do this, I will own you forever. 1994 feature. South African photographer Kevin Carter was covering the famine in Sudan where he photographed this terrifying scene of a starving child stalked by a vulture. The photo first ran in the New York Times, and there was much controversy about whether he could have saved the child. Several months later, Carter committed suicide, leaving a note that read, in part, the pain of life overrides the joy to the point that joy does not exist. And now we'll hear from Martha Ryle. Martha? Good evening. It's an honor and delight to be with you tonight. So this began very much a personal project. I went to Africa to be with my baby sister, Amy. A year before this, my mother had passed away, and Amy didn't want to grieve in the States. She wanted to be away from her four older sisters. But she did say to me, I hope you'll visit. Having no money and resources to go to Africa on my own, I knew I really wanted to photograph it anyway from my newspaper my hometown newspaper, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. So thus began a month of tussling with my editors, begging them to give me the opportunity to go. At that time, the Post-Gazette didn't have a record of doing international travel, and I had never done an international story, but why not? So I bugged them, and I bugged them, and I said, please, you know, I think I'll be safe. I promise I'll, I'll just be with my sister. And one of the things that they said really struck me and has stuck with me to this day is 
do you think people will care? And I'm like, wait, isn't that our job? That's what I believe our, one of our responsibilities are, is to tell them why they shouldn't care, why we need to inform them. So I had, you know, had one last bomb I threw at them, and I said, well, if you don't send me, I'm going to go anyway. And that was a bluff. My father had taught me how to play poker as a young girl, and it worked. A week later, I was on the plane to Rwanda. Speaking next was Carolyn Cole, who won the 2004 Pulitzer for feature photography for her extensive coverage of the Civil War in Liberia, specifically the fierce street fighting in the capital city of Monrovia. Now we'll hear from Carolyn Cole. Carolyn? Thank you very much. It's my goal to take pictures that make you feel what it's like and what's happening. On one particularly bad day, a shell landed in a refugee camp across the street from the American embassy. The people were so angry that the U.S. hadn't arrived to stop the fighting that they drug all of the bodies of the people who had been killed to the front of the embassy in a plea for help. I was worried they would actually turn on the journalist. At the same time, those who had connections were being evacuated by helicopter from the American embassy. As President Bush weighed his options about military intervention, thousands of people were living in the soccer stadium with little food or water, and others were injured in the crossfire. It's hard to photograph people like this in this situation without being able to help, but most of the adults did understand why the journalists were there. It's rare to be one of the few journalists in a place to record history as it's unfolding. I've always felt it was my responsibility to cover conflicts where U.S. soldiers are involved, including in Afghanistan, Iraq, Israel, Kosovo, and others. I still feel, feel that way, although it's become much harder now with ISIS. When I won the Pulitzer Prize, the only person who didn't congratulate me was actually my father, who's a Cold War veteran. His advice to me was just to get back to work. I knew he was right, and I also knew he was proud of me, and he was a good guy, actually, very good father. But he didn't believe in awards and medals and, uh, he, for things that he felt were our duty. The Pulitzer is an incredible honor, but winning prizes isn't why any of us do this work. It's a calling and a privilege, and there is always more work to be done. So thank you very much. Our current decade was represented by two photographers, Daniel Berhulak, who was awarded the 2015 prize for his brave and life-saving coverage of the Ebola epidemic in West Africa, and Jessica Rinaldi, the recent recipient of the 2016 prize for feature photography. Let me welcome Daniel Berhulak to the stage. Daniel. Thank you, Santi. Thank you, Alyssa Adams, thank you to the Eddie Adams Workshop, to the Parsons School uh, for putting on this incredible evening, I think for all of us to get inspired and hear about a profession that uh, is more of a passion than, than a job for most of us. Covering the spread and devastating impact of the Ebola in West Africa was, is by far the most challenging and important assignment of my career so far. It was not a war in the conventional sense. It was not a conflict that was wholly visible, but in so many ways, a battle that captivated and frightened the world. In August 2014, I was headed to Iraq, uh, waiting for a visa 
to um, cover ISIS's advance in northern Iraq. And I received a phone call from my editor, David First, asking me if I was interested at all in covering Ebola. As every freelancer, I think, in my position, um, there's only ever one answer, and the answer is yes. So I jumped at the opportunity, and it was only afterwards that I kind of realized, oh, crap, this is kind of unlike anything I've ever covered before. I've covered some conflict. I've covered many disasters. Um, but I'd never covered an epidemic. I was, to tell you the truth, pretty terrified of a virus that there is no known cure for. Um, and on 22nd of August, I landed in Monrovia. Uh, I really didn't know what to expect. And what I found was a city in chaos. So I spent 103 days over a period of four trips to uh, Sierra Leone, um, Guinea, and Liberia. We did a various number uh, of stories, you know, I don't know exactly how many, but, you know, definitely scores over this period of time in order to tell individual stories, people affected, people in communities, um, healthcare workers, um, all over, all over the, uh, the country. I just wanted to finish with a story of James Dorber. Um, one morning I was, this is James Dorber, eight years old, being carried into a, into a healthcare facility that was over, overcrowded. So I saw um, James there with his father, Edward, trying to help him. And there were people trying to help as well. They were, they were yelling, telling Edward to stay away from his son, not to get close at all. Um, and over this, over a period of like three, four hours, James's health deteriorated. Um, he started getting weaker. Uh, Edward wasn't able to get him to, to drink anything at all. And it was, it was, it was probably one of the worst days to watch a father attempt to care for his child. And because of a deadly virus, he wasn't able to hold or comfort him in his last dying moments. And Ebola is a virus that preys on our humanity, on all that makes us human, to care, to love, to be close to the loved ones in their last dying moments. And I watched a team of guys, you know, they opened up the gates, everyone who was able-bodied ran in, and it was this time where a team of guys came out and they suited up and they had to keep Edward at a, James at a distance because they themselves didn't have the right um, material on. And it was moments after this that we found out days later that after James was, was taken in that, that, um, that he passed away um, shortly afterwards. Thank you very much. Rinaldi's series centered on a young boy named Strider Wolf, who had been severely and physically abused as a two-year-old and now five, was living with his impoverished grandparents in rural Maine. She spoke of a photo she took of Strider and his brother standing in an abandoned car chassis, staring at the moon with imaginary binoculars. One of the things that I try to keep in mind while shooting and editing is that even with stories so full of sadness, you have to allow for moments of joy. Nobody's life is all misery. 
So when I saw this scene on the night of the eviction, I just remember praying that it would be in focus. It was such an innocent and hopeful break from all of the drama of that evening. There were definitely times in the midst of the story when I wondered if anything would come of it, but after it ran, the response was overwhelming. Readers reached out to see how they could help. A GoFundMe executive started a campaign for the boys, raising over $20,000. A trust fund set up by the Globe raised tens of thousands more. The outpouring of support was simply incredible. There are so many other striders out there who we don't know about. There's so much more to be done. But if a story can get people to think about even just one of them, it's a start. While the Pulitzer Prize photography formed the structure of the event, at its heart was Eddie Adams and the workshop he founded in 1988. And as the evening continued, six more award winners took the stage, each alumni of the Eddie Adams workshop. They included Tim Rasmussen, Ruth Fremson, Deanne Fitzmaurice, Damon Winter, and Adris Latif. They spoke of camaraderie of giving back, of renewed inspiration, opportunities to grow in good times with old friends every October on the farm in the Catskills. New York Times photographer Damon Winter was quite succinct in his estimation of the workshop. I don't think I've told many people this, but I, don't, I wouldn't be a photojournalist if I hadn't gone to the Eddie Adams workshop. And Tim Rasmussen summarized what I think the workshop means to so many photojournalists. For me, it was a, uh, there's moments in your life, right? Uh, we all have them, uh, transformational, things change forever. Um, for me, that was probably the pinnacle moment in my life. Um, certainly at that time, it, it directed me, it uh, shifted my whole idea of the planet. Like I had no idea this really existed and there was this family and, and this family, someday I'd be sitting up here with people that I can't even imagine. You know, I'm really nervous right now and I'm never nervous. But it was, it was this place where for the first time in maybe my life, you could talk about photography with people that completely understood why you were a little bit insane about it. I think Carol Guzzi said it, the, it was the obsession that made me good to an editor once, like they'd only get that. And I think it was a place where, it was like a safe place for, for photographers and it never, I've never forgot it and I don't feel like I've ever paid Eddie back for uh, what he gave me as a young photographer. Uh, do we have more questions over there? Hi, I'm Gina. I'm a student at Parsons. Uh, I want to say thank you, John, for your words today. The program concluded with questions and comments from the audience, many of whom were young photographers and students. The advice and support offered was another example of the community of photojournalists giving back, helping how they could. And as the post-event conversations faded, many of the attendees made their way to the bathhouse studio in Manhattan's East Village neighborhood, where a very lively after-party gave room for photographers to hang out and the events organizers to relax and enjoy. As the party continued, what a pleasure it was to see heroes have fun and, yes, even take selfies. There was Nick Utt hamming it up in Cliff Housen's photo booth, Ruth Frampson and Idris Latif pressing limes for margaritas, and New York Times photographer Michelle Agins taking a photo with fellow Chicagoan John White. It was a night for humble introductions and to offer thanks and praise, and it ended, as all good parties should, with handshakes, hugs, and the diligence still on the dance floor. In all, it was a great event, and perhaps we'll best end with an excerpt from Daniel Berhalak's remarks from early in the evening. Pictures make connections between people, regardless of culture, language, 
or geography. With my photography, I strive to move people with the images, to connect them emotionally, to engage the viewer, even just for a second, for them to want to see, learn more about the issues and what is happening in the world around us. This is the B&H Photography Podcast. If you like what you hear, please share our podcast. Tweet us at BHPhotoVideo with the hashtag BHPhotoPodcast and leave us a review on iTunes. Also, subscribe on iTunes for next week's episode in which we'll continue our Pulitzer celebration with a conversation between photographers Ruth Fremson and Martha Ryle. Thanks to my producers, John Harris and Jason Tables. My name is Alan Weitz. Thank you so much for joining us today.